0: female characters who were more than just someone looking for their romantic partner, looking for their future husband to come save them. They were women who had interests, who were interested in being powerful. They were women who understood that they had something to say and they weren't afraid to say it, even if it shook things up, right? These were the women that made a difference. And that now we get to see that in the eyes of our children or our nieces and nephews and the the little kids in our life now. And so it's really cool to see that progression. To all who come to this happy podcast, welcome. This is Spiritually Ever After, the place where Disney meets wellness and spirituality. I'm your host, Kitty Pakman, spiritual mentor, licensed therapist, and major Disney person. This is the place where the magic of spirituality, self-awareness, and personal development meets the magic of Disney. You are safe to be your full magical self here. Now let's dive in. Hello, my friend. Welcome back to Spiritually Ever After. I am your host, Kitty Pacman. This is the place where Disney meets spirituality and wellness, and I am so excited to have you here today. Today, we are talking about this kind of age-old narrative That Disney women are bad role models, or that they only want a man to come and save them or love them. And I figured, in honor of Women's History Month, we would actually look at this because this is something that I think a lot of people kind of perpetuate this story without necessarily looking at the actual characters. So, if you're not familiar with my background, one of my undergraduate majors was gender and women's studies. And I'm now an adjunct professor of diversity in social work at Long Island University. So I love doing deep dive analyses like these. And I especially really like looking at empowered and intersectional feminism. So intersectionality, if you've never heard this term before, is the description of the way in which different categories of identity, so for example, gender, race, age, ability, how these different categories intersect and how that intersection affects that person's experience, especially around privilege and power. So today we're going to be looking at animated Disney women over time to see how the narrative has shifted along with the stories that are being told about women by American society at large over time. So make sure that you are following us on social media if you're not already, so you can engage in this conversation with us, because we really would love to hear your thoughts on this episode. So on Instagram, we are spiritually underscore ever after, and on TikTok, we are spiritually ever after. And just a little disclaimer, we are only looking at Disney animated human women today, um, but there are a ton of really amazing kind of feminine identifying Disney animals, as well as, of course, a ton of Disney women who are not animated. Um, And many of them are really essential to the plot lines, are super active, would totally be seen in this active feminist category. But we don't have all the time in the world. So today we figured we would just focus on animated human Disney women. So I kind of look at this as having three different eras of Disney women and I looked and as I looked at this it really mirrors the evolution of women's empowerment more broadly over the last 100 years or so and it's just this reminder that progress is really slow (laughs) and it takes a long time and then we'll have these periods of rapid growth. And we definitely see that in the Disney Renaissance period, which was basically throughout the 1990s. And you'll see that even in that 10 year period, there's a marked difference between the princesses of the beginning of the Disney Renaissance and the ones at the end. So, less than 10 years and huge shifts happen. So, to just keep that in mind, that sometimes progress takes a really, really long time and feels really slow. And then all of a sudden overnight has this kind of like massive, massive upshoot. So to give you some societal context going into the first of these eras, which I'm calling the old school era, we're starting with Snow White, which came out in 1937. And this was just at the end of the Great Depression and just before World War II. And this was a really scary time in the world. And when people are sort of afraid universally, they tend to revert revert backwards and to go into the safety of what they know. So it was sort of set up to be a time for passive women, right? It wasn't necessarily like the world was asking for super active women. And of course, as I say that, I think about all of the active women who were playing a huge role who were, you know, doing their part to keep America safe through the war, both of the world wars. But that was not being shown the way that it probably would be these days, right? There was this overarching kind of narrative that people wanted to portray of these perfect little family lives. And we especially saw this after World War II, As men were coming back from the war and we entered into the 1950s, we entered this time of the kind of supposedly perfect family unit, right, with the Levittown houses and this nuclear family of a working father and a stay-at-home mother and two children and a dog. And so it only made sense that Disney movies, like most media of the time, was going to reflect that narrative and was going to reflect those sort of traditional family values. So I'm defining this first era, this old school era, as starting with 1937 with Snow White and running until about 1964. And I'm sure other people would break that up into, you know, further down into eras. But just for the sake of this, we're looking at three eras today. It's going to be the old school era, the Renaissance era, and then the empowered women era, this new age era. And so this old school era was 1937 to 1964. So it starts with Snow White in 1937 and Snow White is wishing for a man to love her, but it's almost in a hypothetical way. Like she thinks that's what she's supposed to do rather than it's something that she really innately really wants for herself. And she goes and lives with seven dwarf men in their home until a man comes and saves her. So in that sense, definitely a little bit more passive. Um, She does get some active points because she runs away when the huntsman is coming for her, but otherwise Snow White is pretty passive, pretty traditional, pretty uh, going with what is and not questioning the status quo. Next up, we have Cinderella, which came out in 1950 And this very much has this just keep dreaming motif kind of woven throughout it. And to me, it leads to her not really taking so much action, right? She doesn't really take too much action at all until a literal fairy godmother shows up, magically gives her a dress, magically gets her a way to get to this ball, and gives her a way to disguise herself from her stepmother and her stepsisters. And the way that Cinderella just lets her stepmother and her stepsisters make her a servant in her own home feels very passive to me. Um, And (laughs) I was just watching this and just thinking, like, she could have at least just kind of, like, quiet quit a little bit and, like, not tried so hard. But I do think that, at least in the original Cinderella, you know, she acts as if she's really kind of grateful to be helping around the house as their servant, even though, you know, She yeah she just kind of has allowed that to happen so again pretty passive and then in 1951 we have Alice in Wonderland which came out and I had to include this even though Alice is not a princess because this movie passes the Bechdel test so if you're not familiar with the Bechdel test it's a way of evaluating whether a movie or some other sort you know form of you know fictional work. Portrays women in a way that's sexist or gender stereotyping. And the criteria typically is that you have to have at least two women on screen or in the scene, that they have to be talking to each other directly, and that they're talking about something other than a man, which sounds really simple. But unfortunately, a lot of movies and TV shows and books do not pass this test. And Alice in Wonderland does she Alice has multiple conversations with the queen of hearts with the flowers with her sister um, and none of them are about men or about romantic love so that's pretty cool and as I was watching this to get ready for this I thought about how interesting it is that Alice to me Alice looked similar age to a lot of our other princesses Um, and then when I looked into it she's apparently supposed to be much younger which makes more sense but I was watching it and thinking you know Alice is seen as such a child and she's able to really live this childhood, whereas someone like Merida or Ariel are, you know, being told that they need to get married when they're so young. So I just thought that was interesting. But then when I looked into it, Alice is supposed to be in the original book. She was like seven. Um, They say that most likely in the movie, the original movie that came out in 51, she was supposed to be about 10 years old. So I'm happy to hear that they're not trying to marry off a 10 year old Alice. Next, we have Tinkerbell from Peter Pan in 1953. I included Tinkerbell. I didn't include Wendy, but I included Tinkerbell because I felt like Tink is a different kind of Disney woman. She's not the main love story. She's a friend with feelings, which feels more realistic than some of the other storylines that we get sometimes with Disney, especially the old school ones. But I do think that they portray Tinkerbell in a really negative, jealous way, which feels like it kind of sets women back rather than advocates for equity. So I am going to keep her more towards the passive traditionalist side of this. And then in 1959, we had Sleeping Beauty, so Aurora. And I know I've spoken a little bit on the podcast about how I feel like this movie isn't as patriarchal or problematic or sexist as it's portrayed by some people. I feel like Briar Rose, so Briar Rose is Aurora's name when she doesn't realize that she's Aurora. Briar Rose really wasn't concerned with romantic love. She wasn't concerned with finding a man. She was just sort of wondering about it, right? That's the song, I wonder, because of the birds. And then she meets Philip, and she does not believe that it's her love, and she's very scared. (laughs) She runs away. And then, of course, you know, she realizes she does love him and and a lot more happens in the movie. And I don't want to give it all away here. But, um, yeah, I think it's interesting that people have such a strong feeling around this. I think just because of the nature of the name being about her sleeping and that she's, you know, sleeping and he comes and saves her. But there's a lot in this that speaks to Aurora or Briar Rose being more active and even the way that she gets put under the sleeping curse is kind of more active, right? She gets lured there by Maleficent and she goes and pricks her own finger. It's not like Maleficent just comes in and puts this curse on her. It's that uh, Aurora has to actually walk up there and do it to herself. So I do think we see start to see a little bit more active here with Aurora. And then we move into Mary Poppins, which I realize Mary Poppins is not animated But I felt like I really wanted to include her because I know that this was a project that was really important to Walt. And in my opinion, it almost sort of felt like this was the direction we might have seen things go in if Walt hadn't passed away in 1966. This came out in 64. So this was one of the last things that he had worked on. And yeah, just, you know, she was, Mary Poppins is very, you know, unconventional. She's out there and unafraid to be different and to be herself. And I'm curious if if Walt had not passed away so young, if we would have seen a different type of princess emerge through him. But of course that's not what happened. Walt died in 1966 and then Roy his brother stayed alive just through the opening of Walt Disney World in 1971 and then died really shortly after that. And for all intents and purposes, the Walt Disney Company was lost for a while after this. And it wasn't until the late 1980s and the success of Who Framed Roger Rabbit that Disney finally made the decision to come back to animated movies and to make The Little Mermaid an animated musical. And they had been working on this Version of the Little Mermaid for a very, very long time. I want to say it was like since the 1930s, maybe, but just hadn't found a version of you know what they wanted to do. And so, after this, you know, after Who Framed Roger Rabbit did so well, and people kind of seemed more interested again in animation, they went there and they brought on Howard Ashman and Alan Menken to do the Little Mermaid, and of course, the rest was history. Little Mermaid won two Academy Awards and was nominated for a third. And then on their next movie together, Beauty and the Beast won three Academy Awards and was nominated for Best Picture. So not Best Animated Picture, Best Picture overall, first animated movie to ever have been nominated for Best Picture. And yeah, just Disney was back, right? This was really what sparked that Disney renaissance. And... I know I've said this so many times on here. I talk so much about Howard Ashman and Alan Menken. And I, you know, I really feel like this could have probably been called the uh, Ashman Menken podcast. (laughs) But they just changed the game, you know, not just for Disney, but really for the world in the 1990s. And if you think about it, it's again, it's not just Disney animation. There's so many animated classics came out in the 90s and early 2000s that would not have been if it weren't for the Ashman Mencken team, you know, sparking the Renaissance. So Disney Renaissance is an absolute favorite topic that that I could speak forever on. So I'm excited to get into it today, specifically really looking at the incredible women of the Disney Renaissance. So first, of course, we start the Disney Renaissance era with Ariel, Little Mermaid, 1989. Looking specifically about Ariel from this lens of whether she is active feminist or more passive traditionalist I mean yes people will point to the fact that it's really all about her being in love with Eric but if you really watch this movie is really about her love of humans and her desire to be a human and that she gets to get there through loving Eric so Ariel really loves Eric because he connects her to that humanity she loved humans first and then she loved eric so yes it's about her loving eric but it's about so much more than that and obviously for a large chunk of the movie she doesn't have a voice right and so that could have very well made her a very passive character but instead we see her finding other ways to communicate and to actively save herself to save eric to save everyone in the end so I definitely think Ariel is active. I mean, as you'll see, we're going to just get more and more active and more and more towards that really empowered woman who is so much more than just is she or isn't she focused on finding a, a romantic partner. And next from the Disney Renaissance era is Belle from Beauty and the Beast in 1991. I mean, not only is Belle not focused on finding a man, right, she has... The quote-unquote hottest guy in town, Gaston, proposed to her, and she turns him down. And Belle has interests, right? She loves to read. She wants adventure. So she definitely has a lot on the side of being an active feminist. The only issue is that she does also fall in love with her captor. So I can't in good conscience like definitively say she's an active feminist, But she, yeah, yeah, that's all I'll say about. (laughs) Next, we have Jasmine from Aladdin in 1992. In my opinion, Jasmine is our first clearly active feminist Disney princess. She looks down on being courted, she advocates for her own right to rule, she leaves the castle to experience life unguarded and on her own, and that's when she first meets Aladdin. So I think Jasmine absolutely is an active feminist. Pocahontas in 1995, another definite feminist, strong, wise. Like Belle, she has the option to marry the coolest guy in the tribe, Cocoaum, but is questioning if that's what she wants and really thinks she wants to go her own way. And what I love in this one, too, is that we see some, not a ton, but some of those Native American more matriarchal traditions right, with Grandmother Willow and honoring the earth. So definitely a lot in Pocahontas, more on the active, you know, feminist side. Esmeralda from The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which came out in 1996. Again, I would definitely consider her to be more of a feminist, but I don't, I will admit, I don't know this movie that well. I do think just the nature of her choosing to be friends with Quasimodo, standing up for him, being willing to push back against what society thinks definitely speaks to her being more active and more of a feminist. And then in 1997, we had Meg in Hercules. So Meg is, I definitely see Meg as a very active, independent character there's a classic scene where Hercules is trying to save her, you know, and she says she's a damsel and she's in distress and she can handle it. So have a nice day. So good. And of course she has her famous I won't say I'm in love song, which I've talked about so much on this podcast. I love that song. But definitely speaks to feeling really independent and not needing to be focused on finding love. In fact, seeing it as a distraction and just wanting to focus on which you know what's more important to her. In 1998, we got Mulan, another very clear, very active feminist. I mean, talk about duality, right? She starts with learning to be the perfect bride and trying to bring honor to us all. And then, you know, maybe one or two scenes later, she's cutting her hair off and she's training to, you know, be made a man out of and join the army. And she yeah I mean again I I talked a little bit on the podcast about this movie but it's definitely one that has grown on me a lot more recently but Mulan is really a badass right like even when she saves all of their lives she was ready to accept being killed because they found out that she's a woman she yeah I think Mulan is pretty cool and I definitely get a very like Joan of Arc Ask vibe from her, especially in that scene when she saves all of them. And if you're not familiar, there's this line that Joan of Arc had said, supposedly, where she said, I'm not afraid, I was born for this. And that very much gives me Mulan energy. So I definitely think Mulan is a very, very clear, active feminist, strong role model. We love Mulan. The last woman that I'll mention in the Disney Renaissance era is a Disney Pixar woman. It's Jessie from Toy Story 2 is when she first premiered. And I, again, think she's definitely a clear feminist. I think Jessie is really strong and she voices her opinion and she's seen as a leader. And something that I noticed that I really appreciate that they didn't do is in the more recent movies, they have outright, I think they've outright said that Jessie's dating Buzz. If, if they haven't outright said it, they're definitely making it seem that way. But I think they have outright made it that they're in a relationship. But I love that they didn't have this happen from the start. Right? It's not like they introduced Jessie and immediately had her fall in love with Buzz and they were immediately a couple because that would make it as if she needed him to be powerful and to be seen as a leader by the other toys. That is not the case. Jessie very much developed that leadership on her own, developed that reputation on her own, and now happens to also be dating Buzz. So I, I think that that's good. And I, I appreciate that they did it that way. Yeah, I really like that they made it that Jesse is more than just Buzz's girlfriend. So if you notice, right, when we talked about the old school era, it was almost 30 years from 1937 to 1964. And when we're going to talk about the empowered era next, it's more than 20 years. It goes from the early 2000s until today. So you notice that the Disney Renaissance was only 10 years, and yet it gave us so many of our classic and favorite princesses. And so you see, like, this is one of those periods of time where we had rapid growth and rapid change. And right, hello, millennials, because we we were the children of this era. We were the ones who saw these princesses as they came out, and we learned their stories, and we we grew up with those stories. And now we're the Disney adults. So, of course, they are so influential for us, right? And we're seeing this come back and we're seeing that Disney is realizing it and that they can bring these back and that we get to have those women, we get to have young children today learn from the women that helped us grow into the women that we are. So I think that's so cool. And if you think about what was kind of going on in the world at the time of the Renaissance, again it's late 80s into the 90s and in the early 80s and you know early to mid 80s there was this big push of the powerful independent woman right women going to work women wearing suits with the short hair and you know very focused on their career and so it makes sense that because that's what was going on in society that disney then would follow suit and have female characters who were more than just Someone looking for their romantic partner, looking for their future husband to come save them. They were women who had interests, who were interested in being powerful. They were women who understood that they had something to say and they weren't afraid to say it, even if it shook things up, right? These were the women that made a difference. And that now we get to see that in the eyes of our children or our nieces and nephews and the the little kids in our life now. And so it's really cool to see that progression, at least for me, because again, these were the, these were the stories and the women that I grew up with. And so to now see them from this new lens is really cool. So I kind of think about it as if the Disney Renaissance women walked so that the empowered era women could run. So I call it the empowered era from about 2000 to the present time I will say that there is what's called the Disney Revival Era, and it's seen as from being 2008 until present. And people refer the period from 2000 to 2007 as the, quote, second dark age of Disney. I don't know if that's necessarily true. I do think that there were some good things that came out in that time, but a lot of them were Pixar. And so, and there was a lot kind of going on at this point between Disney and Pixar and the split and having to reacquire and all of these things. So for all intents and purposes, I am going to refer to the time from 2000 until the present as the empowered era. So we start in 2002 with Nani and Lilo from Lilo and Stitch. And to me, both of them, it's like, talk about strong women, right? Like Nani is raising Lilo as, I mean, maybe she's a teenager, maybe her early 20s, but as a single young woman raising your daughter with no support, it's incredibly challenging. And not only that, but she's clearly raising Lilo in a way that Lilo feels like she should be voicing her opinion, that she should have interests And that she's allowed to have interests that are different from most of the other girls her age. That she's going to be a part of extracurriculars, even though it's got to be challenging for Nani to get her to all of these things. And that she lets her take on the responsibility of getting a pet. I mean, really, again, to me, these Nani and Lilo are very, very strong women and absolutely active, active, uh, you know, feminist characters here. 2004, we have... The Incredibles. So Mrs. Incredible, Elastigirl, I definitely think is a pretty active feminist character. She's seen as one of the most famous superheroes in this, you know, world. And even though, yes, she's married to Mr. Incredible, she didn't become an incredible because she's married to him, right? She was a superhero in her own right. She definitely has a name of her own. And so she is definitely an active feminist character. In 2009, we met Ellie from Up, and I love that Up flips this traditional narrative by having Carl be so into Ellie instead of her being so obsessed with him, right? Because how many movies do we know where a woman is just obsessed and infatuated with this guy? Instead, we have the opposite here. And not only that, but we see that when Ellie passes, Carl is really struggling without her, and so, again, it's not showing this, like, classic single woman struggling on her own, but it's showing a man struggling without the woman. So definitely an active feminist character. She has all of her own interests. She really gets him interested in a lot of, of things. So, yeah, I love – if you haven't seen Up, I really, really love Up. It's a really cute movie, and Ellie is definitely an active feminist character. Next, we have Tiana from The Princess and the Frog. So again, definitely active, definitely a feminist. I mean, the whole plot line is just super active, right? It's based on Tiana having goals, taking action on those goals, not just every day, but like every minute of every day. This girl's working two, three jobs. And her relationship with Prince Naveen works really well because she helps him to be less shallow and to really focus on the things that matter. And he helps her to loosen up a little bit and to realize that she can be focused on what she wants, focused on her goals without losing sight of everything in her life. Um, And so I definitely think Tiana is a very good active feminist role model. And just this movie is a really cute movie. I love that movie. In 2010, we got Tangled. So we have Rapunzel, again, another active feminist. Rapunzel has... I mean, she's got all the interests, right? If you watch When Will My Life Begin, she talks about all the things she does before breakfast, and she has a lot of interest. This girl is definitely not just concerned with trying to find a husband. Um, and she has this plan. She wants to see the lanterns. She sees the opportunity, and she takes it, right? And she... I mean she's definitely active right she decides she's going to take it upon herself to make Flynn show her the lanterns and in the end of the movie when Rapunzel is willing to give up her life to save Flynn he cuts off her hair to let her be free and it's really him supporting her right to that freedom to be equal instead of letting her stay stuck in this, you know, submissive disempowered role. So in a way, in the one moment when she makes a choice that may not be the most active feminist choice, but still could be if what's most important to her is taking care of him in that moment. But that's another discussion for another day. Um, But that he then supports her in that equality. And instead of letting her, you know, give up her life for him, he cuts off her hair. And of course, if you haven't seen it, Ends up getting saved, but again, go watch if you haven't seen Tangled, it's a great movie, so go watch Tangled. But Rapunzel is definitely another, you know, wonderful, active feminist character in 2012. We have the movie Brave and Merida, super active, (laughs) definitely feminist. I mean, there's very little focus on romance. In you know, the main storyline of this is how Merida is trying to avoid getting married by just competing in all the activities herself and saying she's going to compete for her own hand in marriage. And this movie is really good for Women's History Month because it is very woman-focused. We have Merida, we have her mom, we have the witch. It's a cute movie for sure, but definitely very, very active, very far from the traditional, just a princess looking for a man to come save her. This is the uh, complete opposite, if you will, (laughs) In 2013, we got Frozen, so we got not one but two more active feminist princesses slash queen, Queen Elsa and Princess Anna. And we have two women here who both do what they believe is right, even if it goes against what they're supposed to do. And obviously Anna, you know, in the first Frozen movie has this storyline where she really wants to find her prince she falls for Hans and then realizes of course that he is not who he says he is and he does not have the best intentions for her and while this could have been an opportunity for Anna to be really disempowered here I think they do a really good job of it where you know she finds out that it's Hans and knocks him off of the boat and he, you know, falls into the water and she ends up with Kristoff. But again, it's not in a really passive way, right? She's able to be her full self with Kristoff. And in a lot of ways, she is in a really powerful role with him. I think that Kristoff and Anna's relationship is very give and take. It's full of compromise. They each have their aspects of it that they are in control of. And I think it just works really well. I mean, if you haven't listened to the Disney couple goals episode, spoiler alert, uh, I love their relationship, but, you know, it's a it's a good one for sure. And definitely a, you know, more postmodern relationship, not the traditional conservative values. And then of course, Elsa is just a total boss <laughs> and totally not concerned with romantic love, totally not concerned with societal standards anymore. Uh, She just wants to really kind of hone her craft and be her truest self and, and just get to show up as herself, the real her, because she had to hide it for so long, which is really cool. So Frozen definitely gives us not one, but two active feminist princess slash queens. (laughs) And then 2016, we have Moana. So the story of Moana, if you haven't seen it, is this young girl, right? And she very much sees the mold that she's supposed to fit into and she's really trying to do it but she just can't <laughs> she can't deny her truth she keeps getting pulled back to the water she keeps going she knows that she's supposed to do something there and of course because she doesn't deny that truth because she does go to the water she ends up saving everyone so to me this movie has a really beautiful metaphor for so many of our journeys of you know especially for us for women who Really want to keep ourselves or keep our loved ones safe, but we it just keeps us small, it just limits us, right? And same goes for when we really want to take that chance and our loved ones want to keep us safe. So, I think this movie gives a really, really beautiful, uh, you know, example of why it's so important to take those chances and to trust and to listen to that inner voice, and so. You know, in this movie, we see that it's because she trusted herself that she was able to save everyone on the island. But had she just played it safe and had she just done what everyone expected, it would have just been more of the same. They needed to make that shift. And so it's a really great reminder that we all have to be willing to challenge the status quo when it feels right for us to do so. And then, of course, we had to mention Encanto, right? We have to talk about Mirabelle. I think there are so many strong women in this movie, but especially Mirabelle. She's, she's the best. She has her own interests, right? She loves to sew. She loves to make her own clothes. She takes care of Antonio. She clearly has a close relationship with the house, taking care of the house. And she is super resilient, especially after not getting a gift. And... Even after all of that, and after clearly picking up on so much fear in the house, she trusts her intuition to figure out what's going on and to save the family and to save Casita. And she has to, not, not only does she have to trust herself to figure out what's going on, but she then has to actively go against her family's cultures and traditions and what she's being told to do. But she trusts herself and she knows that that's more important and stronger than just, you know, well, this is how it is. This is what's what's happened in the past. So I think Mirabelle is a really, really good role model and a clear example of how far we've come from the women of the past, right, of a, a Snow White, where she was just sort of. Singing around, hoping that a man would come along and someday her prince will come and her life will be wonderful. Whereas Mirabelle is not waiting for anything, she is going out and finding it. She is leaping across huge, you know, holes that could fall to her death if she doesn't make it across the landing in order to get into Bruno's tower, in order to figure out what's going on. She takes it upon herself and she knows that she has the capacity to save herself and her family and she helps activate her sisters in the process. There's just so much here. So if you look, you know, from 1937 with Snow White up until Encanto, which came out in 2021, a lot has changed. And I felt like I had to just kind of mention as well, all of the amazing Disney women as villains. (laughs) And I'm not going to go too far in depth here because there might be a future episode dedicated just to this. But I felt like I wanted to just mention these women and briefly just kind of put out there to think about how each of these women is portrayed and the narratives that are told about them. So we start with the evil queen from Snow White. And then we, of course, have the evil stepmother, Lady Tremaine, and the evil stepsisters from Cinderella. We have the Queen of Hearts from Alice in Wonderland. We have Cruella Deville. We have Maleficent. Then we move into Ursula. We have Yzma. We have Mother Gothel. Interesting to think or to notice that there really weren't too many major female antagonists in the '90s. And the only one during the Renaissance was Ursula in 1989. Um, But just thinking about the similarities with the way that a lot of these women are portrayed. And yes, like I said, I don't want to go too far in depth into this, but just thinking with so many of them having evil in their name, a lot of them being, right, the evil queen and the evil stepmother are both stepmothers of our characters. There's a lot here. And there's a lot to unpack. And a lot of it definitely is rooted in patriarchy. It's not that these things have been, you know, have happened by chance. But it's an, it's an intentional narrative that's been woven by society. So just something that we will probably go into in the future. But I felt like I wanted to mention these women as villains because uh, there's are some, some of the really good characters. And I know there are a ton of people who really, really love their villains. So I had to mention them. So I would say altogether, I think that Disney women, especially newer Disney women, are more on the active feminist side than they are on the traditionalist side. I don't think that, especially these days, that Disney women are really upholding patriarchal ways. I think even just the nature of having so many famous Disney protagonist women, a lot of these princesses, the movies are focused around them. And so, yes, I understand that it's women who are looking for a husband in some ways. But just to have women at the center of the movie is, it goes, so, you know, it goes somewhere. It's It carries some weight. And so I definitely think, you know, as we've seen here, a lot of this has grown over time. It's shifted over time. And it's followed a lot of the societal patterns. But I'm very curious to see what will come in the future, right? We know Disney's always growing. We know things are always shifting, We have some sequels and new movies coming out that we know about. And of course, tons of movies that we don't know about. So I'm always curious to see what comes out for the future. But I'm also curious to hear your thoughts. So let me know if this is something that you had ever thought about before. Had you thought about whether Disney women are passive or active and whether they're feminists? And do you agree? Do you think that Disney women are active feminists? Do you think that they uphold patriarchal traditional values? Where do you stand? Let me know your thoughts. You can, like I've always said, you know, you can reach out on Instagram, spiritually underscore ever after on TikTok, it's spiritually ever after you can comment on one of our posts and just let us know or shoot us a message or feel free to leave a review. You can leave a review on Apple podcasts on Spotify. Let us know your thoughts. We want to hear. And if you have ideas for future episodes, we would love to hear that as well. We are getting ready to wrap up the first season of Spiritually Ever After, and then we will be getting ready for season two. So if you have interest in being on the podcast, please reach out. But otherwise, we will look forward to seeing you in our next episode. And we hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you for being here and listening. If you loved it, leave a review and or share and tag me. I would love to connect with you. I'm spiritually underscore ever after on Instagram and spiritually ever after on TikTok. See you real soon.